You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For October 17th, 2018, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. Energy-related investments in commercial and industrial buildings, particularly for things like heating, cooling, and ventilation, or HVAC systems, have always been expensive and difficult to make. Whether made by the building owner or by a tenant, buying them has always meant hiring a contractor, trying to understand complex parameters for the equipment, and then incurring a large cost up front to buy it and have it installed, and then living with its performance, whether it proved to be adequate or not. And in many cases, the customer trying to buy the equipment often isn't particularly knowledgeable about how to even shop for those systems, and they have to assume all of the risk in making that decision, usually without any helpful input or financial support from their utility. In short, buying infrastructure for commercial buildings has been difficult, expensive, risky, and something that most buyers really aren't prepared to do. And if the customer makes a mistake or buys the wrong thing, or the contractor screws up, well, tough luck. That's the buyer's problem. And maybe that's why 68% of the HVAC equipment in commercial buildings in the U.S. is nearly three decades old and in need of replacement, which makes it a huge opportunity to improve the efficiency of our commercial and industrial building systems. But the same issues apply to all sorts of building infrastructure, be it old problems like inefficient lighting systems or newer problems like providing charging systems for EVs for the first time. These are simply not investment decisions that building owners and tenants are generally well prepared to make. Enter infrastructure as a service. To borrow Amory Levin's famous formulation, people don't want to own an HVAC system or a lighting system or an EV charger. They want heating and cooling and light and a charged up EV battery. They want the service, not the thing that provides it. And while there have been companies providing energy as a service in various ways for some time now, there haven't been too many of them tackling the big expensive commercial building infrastructure until now. One such provider is SparkFund, a company that will execute a simple short contract of 5 to 10 years in duration with a commercial customer to provide these infrastructure services at a small fraction of the cost of buying the system. SparkFund finances the project and takes all the risk. If it doesn't perform as promised or the contractor who installed it screws up, it's on SparkFund to fix it. And their utility and installation contractor partners help ensure that the whole customer experience is easy and seamless, as our guest in this episode, the company's founder and CEO, Pierre. Lafarge will explain. It's an interesting model that I think holds real promise for overcoming an important hurdle in improving the energy infrastructure of the built environment, and I think you'll find it interesting. Then in the news segment, we'll talk about the failure of a bill to approve the Western Grid regionalization effort that we discussed in episode 69, a new law requiring California to obtain all of its electricity from carbon-free sources by 2045, an executive order by California Governor Brown that will raise the bar even further for the state, and a new law that will give California's utilities new ways to cover their costs for liabilities related to wildfires. We'll also look at a slate of exciting new all-electric SUVs coming to the market in the U.S., and we'll note the latest episode in the ongoing debacle of Georgia's Votal nuclear plant. 
But first, our conversation with Pierre Lafarge, recorded August 23rd, 2018. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Pierre, to the Energy Transition Show. Glad to be here. Even though most energy experts will tell you that the first energy investment anyone should make is efficiency, actually deploying efficiency measures in our stock of buildings has proved to be remarkably difficult, mainly because it usually entails a pretty substantial capital investment up front, and then it takes years to recover that investment. Some things like swapping out old incandescent bulbs for a more efficient form of lighting, like fluorescent lighting some years ago and now LEDs, might hit simple payback in two or three years, but other measures like upgrading to high-efficiency windows might take so long to pay for themselves that it's not even worth trying to calculate the ROI on that. But of course, that doesn't mean they're not worth doing. I mean, people routinely spend $50,000 or more for a kitchen remodel, which will never pay for itself, but they do it anyway because they like it. And expensive upgrades like windows can really improve the comfort and functionality of a building as well as save energy. But most people really only think about the energy savings. So numerous ways have been tried to overcome this capital hurdle and accelerate the deployment of efficiency upgrades in buildings. Longtime listeners to this show might recall our conversation with Matt Golden, for example, back in episode 16, about turning efficiency into a regular marketable product that can be measured at the meter and sold on that basis. But your company, Spark Fund, is taking a different approach where you're essentially selling energy efficiency via a subscription model, which is, of course, something we can appreciate on this podcast because <laughs> we're also subscription supported, based on the software as a service model. So can you explain us just to get us started here how that works? What exactly does the customer buy and what do they get? Yeah, so it's a great question. And the logic of subscription really comes down to one simple question. Customers currently buy energy from the grid as a service, but they don't own the grid. They don't own the transformers or the power poles. And we have a basic question, which is why do customers own the infrastructure inside their building that uses that energy? Why do you own your air conditioner? And our argument is essentially that making the choice to own your energy infrastructure really exposes you to pain points around time, having to pick the vendor to put it in, to assess which particular equipment you want, having to take the capital to own that equipment instead of putting it into your core business, and taking all the risk and hassle of that ownership. If it breaks, you are liable to replace it. You have to worry about service interruptions or not getting the sort of outcome that you want from that infrastructure. And really, a subscription connects the customer to that outcome. We sell comfort as a service or light as a service. And it really is about getting cool air, which to us is really the only point of an air conditioner. It's to provide cool air to a building. And by offering a subscription, it gives customers an opportunity to not have to experience those pain points of ownership and simply receive the outcome they desire. Yeah, okay. I get that. But obviously, if I'm signing a contract with you, the contract doesn't say you will get cool. <laughs> Right. So what am I buying? Like when I sign a contract, what am I buying? Yeah. I mean, it doesn't talk about your own personal temperature, but what it does actually specify is the outcome of cool air. So you are actually subscribing to the capacity to provide cool air in your building. So you're actually subscribing to a system that can provide enough cooling to get your space to 70 degrees, say, or 60 degrees. So is that what it says in the contract? We'll get your space down to 65 degrees or whatever it is? 
That's right. And it's as simple as that. It's a three-page contract that essentially every time you install something creates a one or two-page addendum that outlines exactly that. What is the outcome that you are subscribing to? Is it enough cooling capacity to bring your building down to a desired temperature? Is it enough light to provide a certain amount of lumens or lighting in a space? It really is that simple. And the payment is connected directly to our ability to provide that outcome. If we can't provide that outcome, your payment is reduced all the way down proportionally to zero if we can't provide the service at all. And that determination is made by what exactly? By what the thermostat says? Yeah, by, you know, every different technology has a slightly different answer, but right. we try to keep them to be very simple methodologies that are agreed upon by the customer and the vendors that we bring in through the platform to provide the service. I see. Okay. So essentially what you're doing then is you're disrupting the traditional model of equipment distributors. So instead of being about selling equipment, you're selling the result that buying a piece of equipment was supposed to deliver. Selling not a firmness, but rather warmth. I get that much. Yep. I guess what's not super clear to me is... Is this something that customers understand? Like they understand buying a piece of equipment. They understand what it means to turn their thermostat up and down. But for example, if they do turn their thermostat up and down and you've delivered a contract to them that says you're going to maintain a certain temperature, does that screw up (laughs) the contract? No. I mean, customers have every right under a subscription to operate their equipment as they see fit, to turn it up and down. We're just providing the capacity. It's like a system that can meet your cooling needs, but if you want to turn the heat up or down, that's entirely up to you. So I think the really nice thing about a subscription compared to more rigid options like performance contracts or other savings-based agreements is that you're really just subscribing to new, better equipment. And again, we don't even see this as an efficiency industry. We see this as infrastructure. Some of the models out there in the market now really focus just on savings. And we think that savings is just one value stream in why people want and need new, better equipment in their space. And a lot of it is about function. If your air conditioner is 35 years old and about to break, you need to make an infrastructure investment. And we think subscription is a way better way to do that than to go back into the same model of ownership. So is there some provision then that, for example, if you install some equipment that's going to provide a certain service for them, and then that equipment isn't functioning or, you know, it's not performing to spec or whatever, that somebody's going to come and replace that equipment to restore the actual service that was purchased? Absolutely. Once you sign a subscription and you have that guaranteed function, you have one fixed price. There's no variability. There's no extension. If we don't hit that service, you don't pay. And the contract doesn't get longer on the back end. There's no kind of safety net for us. We have to provide the exact outcome that we're describing in the contract or we don't get paid. It's the first time that it fully aligns a provider with a customer, again, to get the exact outcome that they most desire and be able to spend their time, capital, and risk focused on what they do best, their core business. A lot of this logic is just that we think that infrastructure is a category that should be a simple subscription-based commodity, and customers should be able to focus on what they really care about, which is their core business, their core mission, whether that's making and selling a product to customers or educating students or focusing on delivering great care to patients. So what about the duration of the contract? I mean, for like an infrastructure investment, you're typically looking at, well, for an appliance in a home, at least a 10-year expected life cycle, right? Or maybe much longer, maybe several decades. So what's the duration of the contract and how do you make sure that that's matched up? 
Yeah, it's a great question. And we fit the subscription contract to the particular project and to the different value streams. So, you know, some of our contracts are as short as three or four years for something like lighting or controls, and some of them are as long as 10 or 12 for heavier equipment like heating or boilers. So how are your services being delivered? Are they being resold by utilities and other retail service providers? Or you know, are they the direct buyers of your service and then they're in turn reselling it to the end user? The customer is always the direct buyer. So they are the ones subscribing to infrastructure. But we've found a really exciting set of partnerships in the market with some large utilities and energy brands because this is really about a shift in how energy brands add value to customers. And if you think about a utility, for decades, they've been providing the grid as a service, owning, operating, and optimizing the grid for low-cost, resilient energy. They send a kilowatt hour to the meter, and the customer pays for it as a service. This allows, like what SparkFund really is, is an enabling platform that that utility can white-label and bring to its customer as an extension of its brand to say, we can now provide infrastructure as a subscription inside your building, low-cost, resilient, best-in-class infrastructure powered by SparkFund. So we're a little bit like Intel inside. We go alongside brands that really want to bring that value to their customer, and we make it not just possible for them to do that, but with a really seamless, cohesive, great customer service and also customer experience, and again, help them rationalize all the different vendors, technology types. So they're not selling their customers individual widgets. They're selling their customer the ability and concept of subscription. Interesting. So the customer's actual interface is probably with their local distribution utility. That's right. We're not trying to take the customer of the utility in any way. We are actually a service provider to that utility as an operating system, as an enabling platform that they use, again, on a white-labeled basis powered by SparkFund to bring to their customer. So the customer doesn't actually have a typical relationship with you know, like if they were going to buy a furnace, their relationship would be with a general contractor, right, who would come in and install the furnace or some appliance contractor. In this case, no. In this case, their relationship is with the utility, even though the utility is probably sending a contractor to come install it. That's right. The utility has a deep relationship with its customer. They've been providing value in different ways, particularly in the commercial sector, across tariffs and siting and you know, other parts of how they engage with their customers. And we are just an extension of that. They can offer to provide subscription infrastructure behind the meter in their customer's building. And then a SparkFund solution salesperson, who again is a service provider to the utility, goes and actually explains the subscription and coordinates the vendors, identifies the best project for that customer, and then brings them every project that meets their kind of desired outcomes on that subscription. You know, this is interesting because, you know, decades ago, I want to say like the 40s, 50s, 60s, utilities had various ways that they were trying to sell appliances to customers as a way of encouraging them to use electricity. And, you know, over the years, there's also been various attempts for utilities to say, hey, swap out your sometimes an electricity appliance for a gas appliance because we're now selling gas. Those attempts, in many cases, were not successful, or in some cases, regulators actually forbid it at some point. And they said, you know what, you guys are not in the business of selling appliances, you're just in the business of selling electricity. So there was a regulatory barrier, I think, at some point, against a utility actually selling a service in the form of selling an appliance. So now it seems like this is actually kind of a way to return to that, like it gives utilities a way to actually deliver 
well, a service for sure, but even, you know, also an appliance, essentially. Yeah, and I think there's a big difference between individual appliances and a service. Utilities are actually encouraged to sell services as long as they're willing to, again, be a provider that takes risk away from their customer, right? They do that with the grid. You get a kilowatt hour, and we make sure that the grid works as a utility. What utilities aren't good at, and in fact don't like doing to their customers, is being widget salespeople. Right? They don't like calling their customer and say, hey, I've got this EV charger, or this new LED offer, or this rebate. That doesn't track with how customers engage with utility as a provider of the grid. The grid is infrastructure. What's different about this offer is it lets the utility directly extend their core competency, their business model of providing infrastructure with guaranteed function and a transfer of risk to their customer, extend that behind the meter on a subscription basis. So they're not selling widgets, they're selling a subscription. I get that. But let me play the devil's advocate for a minute here. What's the real consumer benefit to this disruption? I mean, what's from the consumer's perspective, what's so wrong with buying some hardware from a distributor or a value-added reseller or a subcontractor? Or put the other way, what's superior about the service model from the customer's perspective? Sure. Well, you know, it's not that ownership doesn't work. It's obviously the dominant model. But I think that what we're seeing across category after category is when new offers often in the form of a subscription, take hold, customers find an enormous increase in their total value received, a lower cost, and a better customer experience. So I'll be more specific. When you purchase infrastructure on your own, let's say an air conditioner, you go to an individual contractor. You have to maybe talk to 10 of them to figure out which one is the best. You then negotiate a price and terms with that contractor. They have business development costs that they have to charge because they're not sure they're going to be win right out of the 10. Sure. And you're not sure that they're the best contractor. You've got to worry about them doing good work at the right price. Customer acquisition has a cost. Sure. And their incentives aren't aligned because that contractor really has an incentive to do the installation, do it well enough to satisfy the customer, but then move on to the next sale. It's how they make money. Right. What's different about a subscription is we save the customer a huge amount of time by selecting best-in-class vendors that we know and we've vetted and we do a lot of work with, pre-negotiating price and service terms, often cutting the margin significantly because they're actually being given that business without business development cost or out the risk. And then we present a transparent offer to the customer. We actually show them our vendor's margin. We show them our costs. We really believe that this sort of subscription offer shouldn't be opaque. It should be a commodity. And when you give a customer that sort of transparency and that sort of kind of embedded offer, it lowers the cost, it improves the quality of the equipment, and it aligns the service provider because they're installing something that they are guaranteeing the function of through us. So if it doesn't work over five, seven, or 10 years, they actually have to come back and fix it at their cost. We pass that risk right to the installer who's putting it in. So we think that subscription is both lower cost, higher quality, and aligned with really what everyone cares about in this category is that their cool air machine is going to keep producing cool air when they need it over its lifetime. 
We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all of the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year or $5 a month. Monthly subscriptions are just $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer half-priced annual subscriptions for universities. Students can purchase individual subscriptions, or professors can purchase bulk subscriptions for their classes. Numerous educators now use the Energy Transition Show as coursework, and their testimonials are available on request. And finally, we offer site licenses with group discounts on annual subscriptions for all members of institutions, such as corporations, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. This news segment is going to be mostly about California, which has managed to make energy news on three different fronts in the space of a month. First, a bill that would have authorized California utilities to become part of an interstate grid as part of the Western Grid regionalization effort we discussed in episode 69 of this podcast, failed in September as AB 891 stalled in committee and expired without facing a Senate vote. Opponents of the bill included environmental, consumer, and labor groups. The Sierra Club, for example, claimed that regionalization could undercut clean energy development in the state and create more demand for out-of-state coal-fired power plants. However, it should be noted that our guest in episode 69, Laura Wisland of the Union of Concerned Scientists, explained why she did not believe that those were important risks. Proponents of the regionalization scheme, including Governor Brown, are expected to renew their efforts to proceed with the plan, while some opponents, such as the Clean Coalition, an energy policy group, favor expanding the California Wholesale Power Market's existing Energy Imbalance Market, or EIM. Again, listen to episode 69 and explore its show notes for much more detail on this very complex topic. Item 2. About two weeks after the California legislature passed SB 100 in August, as we discussed with Jonathan Kumi in episode 78, Governor Brown signed it into law committing California to obtaining all of its electricity from carbon-free sources by 2045. But then he went one step further. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at MikeSugarMusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.